Grab a Bible, turn with me to Daniel chapter 5. Recently, I uh, caught my two-year-old son in a lie. I know. He had made a mess in our kitchen. I knew it was him. So I said to him, I said, Ben, who made this mess? He looked around a little bit, and I could see his little brain thinking really hard. He said, mmm, Charlotte did it. I said, no, I don't, I don't think it was Charlotte. He thought some more. He said, mmm, mommy did it. I said, no, I don't think it was mommy. He thought some more. Then he said, mmm, sunset did it. That's our cat, sunset. I said, no, I don't think it was sunset. I said, did you make this mess, Ben? At that point, realizing he was out of options, he simply said, yep, that's me. So <laughs> he did admit to it. Now, I, I did not teach my son how to lie. So it must have been my wife. I don't know uh, who else could have. No, I'm kidding. No one taught him how to lie. We didn't teach him that, at least intentionally. So how did he learn to not be truthful? Where did that come from? Well, <laughs> we know my son like all of us, as precious as he is, he's a born sinner. Sin is in his nature, so sinning and doing what's wrong comes naturally for him. And we know that's true for us, too. Raise your hand if you've ever told a lie before. Some of you lying right now. I can't believe it. That's terrible. Lying is a sin that, look, I know all of us have committed. Because we are sinners, we struggle to tell the truth. But let's think about this. Why do we choose to lie in certain situations and not in others. A lot of times the reason we lie is because we want someone's approval. We want the person we're lying to to think better of us or we want to gain their admiration or respect or we want to avoid their disapproval, like in the case of my son. He didn't want to get in trouble and receive disapproval from me or deal with the consequences and have to clean up his mess, so he lied. And lying becomes more tempting depending on who that other person is. If it's someone we respect who has some kind of authority over us, we, be, we may be more tempted to lie to them. So your boss or your teacher, your parents, even your pastor, uh-huh. Those are the kinds of people we, we find ourselves wanting to lie to. And this is why it's viewed as courageous and rare to speak truth to power. Because we know when someone does that, it could cost them. And yet, as Christians, that's exactly what we must do today. We must be people who speak the truth, even to the powers to be, even if it costs us everything. That's what I want to show you this morning from Daniel chapter 5. This is our fifth week in a series walking through the first six chapters of the book of Daniel, which is the narrative portion of the book. And this Old Testament book, let me remind you, was written in a time when God's people were living in exile in a city called Babylon. And as we learn from Daniel chapter 1, the wicked king of Babylon invaded the nation of Judah where God's people lived. And the first thing he did was capture some of the best and brightest young men he could find. Included among that group was Daniel and a few of his friends. We've been following their story each week as they navigate how to be faithful to God in a faithless culture. Despite the challenges they faced, we've seen so far they actually excelled. They earned the respect of the king. He even promoted them as leaders. We've seen God's sovereign hand at work, protecting their lives, and even giving them a testimony in this dark place. So today, let's continue walking through this story as we see Daniel speak truth to power in a culture dominated by lies. Look with me at Daniel chapter 5. Let's just start with that first verse, verse 1. 
King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Now, the first thing you might be wondering here is who is King Belshazzar and what happened to King Nebuchadnezzar? He's the guy we've been reading about all this time. Well, let me clarify. The purpose of the book of Daniel is not to give us an accurate historical account of the history of Babylon. It's to tell us about God and what he did in this time. So we don't always get the details of who someone is, what their background is, the specific date things occurred. But there are other historical sources that tell us some important things about the context of this chapter. For example, we know that we have jumped here about 25 or so years from the end of chapter 4 to the beginning of chapter 5. King Neb is dead, and he's been replaced multiple times over. Belshazzar was actually the co-regent of the Babylonian Empire at this time, along with his father, who at this point had taken an extended leave of absence. We see in the first verse that the king threw a giant party for all the leaders of his nation. Now, this was not unusual. Kings in this time often flaunted their power and success with these big raging parties. But what makes this scene so bizarre is is the timing of this party. It was sort of like partying before the end of the world. On this very night, the empire of Persia was on the brink of taking over Babylon. The armies were literally right outside the city gates. And as we will see, this will be the very last night of the Babylonian empire's reign. So whether Belshazzar was trying to have one last hurrah or trying to muster up the spirits of his people for one last stand... We don't know. Either way, this young, arrogant hotshot is about to make a very poor decision. Look at verses 2 through 4. Belshazzar, when he had tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, And the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. For some reason, when men want to impress people, they often do dumb things. That is the case here. As Belshazzar remembered that his kingdom owned some really fancy drinkware. Uh, You may remember from chapter 1, one of the first things King Nebuchadnezzar did when he invaded Jerusalem was to go into God's temple and take some of the holy things. These were the utensils and items that were considered sacred by Israel because they were used in worship and in making sacrifices to God. They weren't just valuable. They were holy. And even though Nebuchadnezzar stole these items and put them in the temple to his gods, it doesn't seem that he was brazen enough to actually use them and defile them. Belshazzar was on a different level. He called for the golden vessels from the temple. He filled them with wine, and he drank from them. Then he passed them around to his bros and his ladies. And here's the kicker. While they drank from God's holy vessels, they praised their own gods. This was a perfect example of what we might call blasphemy. All right, and here's the result. Look at verses 5 and 6. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared... And wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. And the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. So don't, don't miss here how eerie, how terrifying this would have been. It's like the scene from a scary movie. This floating human hand just appears. It starts writing on the wall. The story even created a phrase. It's now common in the English language today. The writing is on the wall. 
The king, he, he's understandably, he's spooked. So he did what we've seen before in this book. He called up his wise men. And they had one job in this kingdom, and again, yet they could not do it. They couldn't make sense of the writing. So the king, he's even more upset until the queen shows up. And for reasons I won't get into here, scholars believe this woman was most likely who we would call the queen mother, uh, who was the daughter of King Nebuchadnezzar. And she told the king, she said, don't worry, I know a guy. His name is Daniel. And back in the day, Nebuchadnezzar used him a lot because he knows stuff. He knows how to solve problems, and he'll tell you what this writing means. So the king called for Daniel. Jump down with me to verses 13 through 16. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah. I have heard of you, that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation. But they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. If we look closely here, we begin to get a sense that Belshazzar was speaking down to Daniel. He was quick to remind him, aren't you one of those guys we, we took, uh, those exiles we took from Judah? He doesn't seem to have a lot of respect for Daniel and what he did in the past to help the kingdom. Nevertheless, he promised him with typical rewards for his help. And watch how Daniel responds, verses 17 to 23. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne, and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast. And his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, but you've lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honored. You see a difference here between the way Daniel addressed Belshazzar and King Nebuchadnezzar? He said, hey, 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 keep your gifts for yourself. I'll tell you about this writing, but first, let me give you a little history lesson. And he recounts the story we saw last week in Daniel 4 about King Nebuchadnezzar and God humbling him. And he says, you knew about that, and yet you've gone down the exact same prideful path as him and even farther than he did. He says, ultimately, even though you know about my God, you have refused to honor him, the one who holds your breath in his hand. And Daniel's bringing the fire here. And we get the feeling that he does not quite respect this king like he did Nebuchadnezzar. He knows he's a young, hot shot, daddy's boy, trust fund kid who is on the brink of bringing ruin to the nation. And he's not wasting any time telling him the problem. So he interprets the writing. Look at verses 24 
through 28. Then from his presence, the hand was sent. And this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, mene, tekel, and parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Paris, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Three words, three words on the wall. First one repeated twice for emphasis. These were Aramaic words, the language of the Babylonians, and they referred to weights, to, to weights. And Daniel interpreted them in their verbal form, simply meaning this, numbered, numbered, weighed, divided. So put together, that message essentially meant it's over. It's over. You've defied God. You've refused to repent. And this is the end for you and your kingdom. Here's how it all concludes, verses 29 to 31. Then Belshazzar gave the command. And Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck. And a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. The writing on the wall turned out to be the writing on the wall. The meaning, the meaning was fulfilled immediately. Belshazzar killed that night and the kingdom taken over. And unlike the previous chapters, we don't get a happy ending here. Daniel had a tough job. He had to step out of the shadows to serve a kingdom that had clearly forgotten him and forgotten his God. He had to put his life on the line again and tell a young, arrogant king the worst news he could imagine. And notice, Daniel could have said anything. Everyone knew the city was likely to be taken, but Daniel chose in that moment to speak truth to power. So what does this chapter mean for us? We may not get the chance to speak to our political powers the way that Daniel did. It's unlikely that any of us will get to sit in the Oval Office or go before Congress and share with them. But we each have an opportunity to speak truth to the spiritual powers of our day. Paul said that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, in other words, against other human beings. Rather, we're at war against evil spiritual forces and the powers in the spiritual realm. We, we call that spiritual warfare. And just as Daniel battled against these spiritual forces in, in his Babylon, we battle against them in ours too. And at the heart of this battle is a fight over truth. Listen to me this morning. We're told by the powers in our culture that truth is not objective, meaning it's not the same for everyone. There's no set standard of right and wrong. Rather, truth is subjective. It's individual to each person. So he has his truth and she has her truth. And what each of us need to do is just find our own truth and live that out. That's the message we hear. And that false way of thinking has infiltrated every part of our culture, including even the church. Pastor Derek pointed me to a survey that's published every two years on the state of theology in America. Surveys simply ask various questions about Christian beliefs, and then they compare them to how they change over the years in our country. And they just released the data from 2022, and it's, it's concerning. Listen to this. Overall, what it shows is a continued move away from basic Christian beliefs for the average American. Here's a few examples. 53% of Americans today believe the Bible contains helpful accounts of ancient myths 
but is not literally true. That's a number going up every year. 60% of Americans think religious belief is a matter of personal opinion. It's not about objective truth. So what we see here is this is movement away from the truth of the Bible and toward this subjective, personal, every man for themselves view of truth. But what concerns me more than what the world thinks is what we learn here about the church. Now, this survey uses the term evangelical, which means a lot of things today. It's a political marker in the broader culture. But in this survey, these people are, are like us. They believe the Bible's their highest authority. They trust in Jesus alone for their salvation. And here's some examples of what they found about evangelicals. 43% said they believe Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. That's up from 30% in 2020. 38% said religious belief is a matter of personal opinion. It is not about objective truth. That's up from 23% in 2020. So again, we have that decline, again, of the Bible's authority of truth in our lives. And here's where we begin to see some of the cultural lies that are replacing it. 37% of evangelicals said they believe gender identity is a choice. That's up from 22% in 2020. 28% said the Bible's condemnation of homosexual behavior doesn't apply today. That's up from 11% in 2020. So these are just symptoms of what's really happening in our culture, which is a disregard and a distortion of the, of the truth and a replacement of the truth with lies that feel good and sound good. And though this is concerning, as we've seen today, this is not new. This is not new for Christians this has always been the case. We have always seen the powers of Babylon at work in our world since Genesis chapter 3. And these powers will continue to be at work until the day Jesus comes back. So what that means is rather than panicking and worrying all the time and getting angry about everything, is we actually have an opportunity like Daniel to stand up and to speak truth to power. So this morning I want to close by giving you three keys Three keys, how we can learn to do this, how we can speak truth to power from Daniel chapter 5. Here's the first. Number one, live so that the truth is seen. Live so that the truth is seen. One of the things we see throughout the book of Daniel is that Daniel stood out from everybody else in Babylon. Every time something went wrong, they called in all the wise guys and all the magicians and all the big dogs, and when they failed, Daniel rose up. In this chapter, chapter 5, as Belshazzar saw the writing on the wall and he panicked, the queen spoke up and notice what she said. Look back at verse 11. She said, there's a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And Nebuchadnezzar said the same thing in chapter 4. He said, in Daniel is the spirit of the holy gods. What does that mean? That sounds kind of strange to us. Let's remember that this was a polytheistic culture, meaning they had a lot of different gods, not just one. So for Daniel to have the spirit of the gods in him was for them their way of saying he was like the gods. There was something different about him that was distinct from everybody else that reminded these people of a supernatural being. So it's clear, Daniel was different. It wasn't because he had a big mouth and liked to tell everyone what he thought all the time. It was because his spirit was different. He lived and acted and carried himself differently. And this gave him an opportunity to speak the truth. 
We know today the reason Daniel was different was not because he had a spirit of some gods, but it was because he had the spirit of the God. Daniel had a relationship with God. He knew him. He trusted him. This was reflected in his life. And this was the starting point for how he was able to speak truth to power. And that must be our starting point as well. We are not going to be heard if our lives look just like everyone else's. Why would the world listen to us if we're just the same as them? Why would anyone listen to us if we talk the truth but don't walk it? There's a reason lost people tend to think of Christians as hypocrites. The truth we believe must first be evident in the way we live. And the key to living out the truth comes from a relationship with the God of truth. Just like Daniel, we must personally know God, be filled with his Holy Spirit, and have a personal relationship with his son Jesus. Followers of Jesus Christ have always been a distinct witness in the culture around them. Think about the book of Acts. We see the very first Christians, they're outcasts. People don't even know what to do with them. They they don't understand. It's so different. So let me ask you. Is there evidence in your life that you believe what you say you believe? Do you have a distinct witness that separates you from your coworkers, your neighbors, your friends, and your family who don't know the Lord like you? If you're not seeking to daily live like Jesus and you're not seeking to be his witness where he's placed you, then what right do you have to speak truth to someone else? That doesn't help the cause of Christ. In fact, when we talk one way and live another, when we say we know Jesus, yet we live just like the world, we actually do damage to the cause of Christ. We undermine the very mission we're called to. To speak truth to power, first live so that the truth may be seen. Here's the second key we learn. Number two, speak so that the truth is heard. Speak so that the truth is heard. When you live a life that is distinct from the culture around you, when you live like Jesus, then you're going to have opportunities to share and speak. Again, it may not be to a big government official or world power like Daniel, but there will be opportunities to speak the truth. Like Daniel, God will put you in a position where you will have a choice. Am I going to speak in a way that makes me look good? or that gets me out of trouble, or earns the praise of man, or will I speak the truth, whatever the cost may be? There comes a time when we have to open our mouths and speak, but let me be clear about this. Listen to me. The Bible doesn't just tell us what to say, but it also tells us how to say it. It's not only our words that are to be distinct, but our voice. Listen to these scriptures. Ephesians 4.29 says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Colossians 4, 6, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Proverbs 15, 1, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. James 1, 19 and 20. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Man, just turn on the TV. Watch the news. Listen to political speeches and rallies. Get on social media. Listen to your coworkers. Is this the way people talk today? 
So when you and I speak in this biblical, God-honoring way, people listen. I believe a huge reason we live in a time with such animosity and anger and division is because of the way people talk. Even in Christian circles, we talk about people as if there are enemies to be destroyed. Like we're in and they're out. we got to get rid of the out. Listen, those who vote differently and have different politics than you are not your enemies. Those of different religions or have, who have no religion at all, they're not your enemies. The LGBT community is not our enemy. Satan is our enemy. And those who live under his sway do not need our anger and our hatred, but they need our compassion. All of us were there at one point. All of us were lost at one point in our lives. Who were we to turn away love from someone who was like us? So let's not forget the goal of speaking the truth is not just to win an argument. Or to own the other side or to destroy people made in God's image. It's to bring someone from darkness to light. That's the goal. Yes, we must persuade. Yes, we stand for the truth. Yes, we must be bold and clear. But it's possible to speak the truth in a way where it comes across like lies. We cannot be just another screaming voice in a culture of clanging cymbals. We must be a distinct voice with a distinct message. We must speak so that the truth is heard. Here's the third and last key, number three. We must listen, listen so that the truth is embraced. There's one key difference between Daniel and us today. Daniel had direct revelation from God. He, he knew without a doubt that he was speaking for God. Now, we have God's word today. We have direct revelation from him, and as long as you can cite a chapter and verse, you can be confident that you're speaking truth. But here's the thing. While the Bible is infallible, we are not. As sinners in need of a Savior, all of us are wrong sometimes. Let me say that again. All of us are wrong sometimes. You can elbow the person next to you. All of us are wrong sometimes, right? That means sometimes we, we play the role in this story, not of Daniel, but of King Belshazzar. All of us at one point or another need to hear the truth. That's why we need our Bible, read our Bibles. That's why we need to listen to sermons and hear Sunday school lessons. This is why we need godly friends who will play the role of Daniel in our lives and tell us the truth, even when it hurts. And like Belshazzar, when that happens and we hear the truth, we have a choice. We can repent and change, or we can refuse and face the consequences. See, the writing that was on the wall was written for us too. Because we too are prideful sinners. Because we too are really no better than Belshazzar. God says to us, your days are numbered and will come to an end. That's true for everyone. You have been weighed in the balance and found wanting. That's true for everyone. Your kingdom will be divided and conquered. That's true for everyone. That is our fate apart from God's saving grace. But because of Jesus, because of what he did on the cross and at the resurrection, we can be forgiven. We can have eternal life. We can know the truth. And the truth will set us free. So today... Before we can speak the truth, we have to live out the truth. Before we can live out the truth, we have to listen to the truth. 
and believe it. So what truth is God speaking to you today? Once you've embraced it, then by his grace, then you can speak it to the powers of the world around us. But make sure, make sure you believe it first. Would you bow your heads with me?